Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2. As I promised, there wouldn't be a huge gap in between the seasons, and Season 1 ended yesterday. Season 2 is beginning today, so I did keep my promise on that. Um, Today we're going to go into T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about some of the historical events and some of the changes that take place in the beginning of the 20th century. Now, some of the works we've talked about have been in the 20th century. Things like The Jungle by Upton Sinclair was in the 20th century. We talked a little bit about that in under naturalism. And really, the break with naturalism and modernism doesn't start until after World War I. After World War I is when you really get the break and you move into modernism. And modernism is a movement that doesn't just pertain to literature. Uh, Modernism also has to do with painting. It also has to do with sculpture. It also has to do with architecture. But we're going to be focusing in on modernism as far as literature. Now, what are some of the reasons for the shift between naturalism and modernism? Um, The reasons are really varied, and it, it was something that had been brewing for a long time. You know, we talked about in earlier episodes how you know, Darwinism and the Industrial Revolution really changed the way people uh, viewed our place in the world and how that eventually led to a little bit more pessimism. Well, as you move into the 20th century, the Industrial Revolution in the United States in, in, and in Great Britain in particular are really in full force and the conditions for workers, the conditions for the food we're eating, you know, all of these things seem to be getting worse. But people are sort of occupied with other things. Um, There's a lot of different political movements that are fighting uh, to come to power. You know, capitalism is starting to get some competition from socialism, from communism, from anarchism. Uh, And so there's a a lot of instability that's starting in the beginning of the 20th century. And one of the things that really kind of jumpstarts this is World War I. Now, World War I is something that changes most people's views on war. Prior to World War I, if you survey most of the literature written about war, it generally talks about it as some kind of, uh, you know, glorious endeavor, um, and it it paints it in very idealized ways. Well, this changes in World War One partially because warfare itself changes. At the beginning of World War One, you had some of the armies were still using the old style of fighting, which is with single shot uh, weapons. You march up to a certain point, you stop, you take a shot, you load your weapon, you march up to another point, um, you take the final shot, and then you have a bayonet fixed to the end of the rifle or a sword, and you rush in for hand-to-hand combat. Um, Some of the armies were still fighting like that at the beginning of the war, and other armies had machine guns. And when you have machine guns, the best thing you can have for the other side is for them to line up in nice straight lines uh, because that makes it easier to wipe them out. World War I had some horrific battles where, you know, there were just huge massacres in short amounts of time. Um, and this starts to change people's perceptions about war, but also changes it about changes their perceptions about technology. 
you know, they were already starting to feel like technology and science were something that was starting to enslave us with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, uh, particularly the working classes. Um, the war really made it apparent that science and technology were something that could wipe us out in large numbers. Um, in addition to machine guns, you also have tanks introduced, you also have planes introduced into the war that can drop small bombs, you have uh, poison gas, which killed lots of people in the war, and you have a war that is, you know, raging for years without moving. You know, there is no glorious two armies meet, one army is victorious. Uh, people spend years back and forth, shooting back and forth from the trenches. So it starts the era of trench warfare because of the machine gun and because of poison gas. Um, <clears throat> so you have a lot of pessimism building about the way things are going. And you have a lot of belief that the, the old way of doing things just isn't working anymore. When you get to the end of World War One, you have another major catastrophe. And this is really something that we can relate to at present because... It was a global pandemic. You know, at the end of World War One, you had the global uh, influenza pandemic that killed millions of people worldwide. So as a lot of these soldiers were returning from really horrible conditions, uh, they were, you know, bringing this back with them to all corners of the world and causing a, glo a global pandemic um, that, as I said, killed tens of millions of people worldwide. Uh, this was a much larger killer than COVID, mainly because we didn't have the understanding of, of you know, how diseases spread as much. We didn't have the uh, medications to counteract these diseases like we do now. So this wiped out lots of people. So as you come into the beginning or the end of the war, you're coming into the beginning of the 1920s. And when everybody thinks about the 1920s, they think about the Roaring Twenties and how everyone was, you know, having a good time. It was the jazz era. You had all of the writers from America and all over the world and painters and sculptors and, you know, musicians all hanging around in Paris. And it seems from the outside like everyone's having a good time. But as you read the literature of this era, you start to realize that the writers... Uh, and the artists see themselves as living in a broken world. They see themselves as living in a world where none of the pieces fit together anymore. Nothing makes sense. Um, you know, war is not glorious. Science and technology are trying to enslave us and kill us. Um, you know, everything comes into question. Marriage, uh, you know, the, the family is, as, you know, people saw it. This starts to come into question. Uh, you have the different movements uh, coming forth, uh, women's, women's liberation, women's rights. Um, these things are all coming into existence, and the world is changing very quickly. But one of the things about rapid change is rapid change also creates huge amounts of fear. Eventually, the people will settle into new things and, and keep going. But when it doesn't feel like the change is ever going to stop or the change is ever going to slow down, uh, people start, you know, living in fear. 
And this is really something that, again, we can point to today and look at the way things are today and see a lot of these same fears. You know, in a lot of ways, the 2020s are a lot like the 1920s. Um, you have a lot of instability, you have a lot of uncertainty, you have a lot of people, you know, rushing, looking for something or someone to tell them what to do. And in the writings of the modernist period, you have a this overall philosophy that we're living in a broken world, and all we have is pieces of the old world. But if we put these pieces together, you know, perhaps we can make a world that makes sense. And so in poetry and in prose, you have a lot of experimental literature. You have a lot of experiments with form, a lot of experiments with style. Now I'm going to hold off on talking about the modernist prose until we get into uh, the next episode on literature, which will be in two episodes. Um, but I do want to go into the poetry. And in particular, I'm going to focus on one poem because I think that that poem really does kind of give a good sense of the 20th century and of modernism. And that poem is The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Now, when you come to read The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, unless you have an extensive background in literature, it can be a poem that is extremely daunting. Um, because Eliot is making allusions all over the place. He's alluding to writers from all different time periods. He's, a, he's actually, you know, quoting lines from different writers, and not even different, just different writers in English. Some of it is in, you know, Latin. Some of it is in Italian. Some of it is in French. Uh, some of it is in German. Uh, and so you have this mixture but this is really encapsulating what the modernists were feeling because what Eliot is doing is taking all of these pieces from the past and trying to recreate a world that makes sense. So if we start out looking at the beginning of the poem, at the beginning of the poem it starts out, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring, ro spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. Summer surprised us, coming over the Starnbridge Easy with a shower of rain. The beginning of this is very typical of what you would see in older literature. This is an invocation of spring. Um, normally in poetry, though, that's an invocation of spring, spring is a time of rebirth. It's a time of life coming back. It's a time of great hope and positivity. Uh, but for way, for Eliot in the Wasteland, spring is a terrible thing. You know, April is the cruelest month. This is almost a direct line um, reference to the beginning of the Canterbury Tales. You know, when it talks about when in April the spring showers pierce the flowers to the root um, and engendered as the flower. This is you know, that is typical of what an invocation of spring is. Eliot has turned that around because this spring, this awakening uh, into a new life, is not a new life that seems wonderful and beautiful and fantastic. It's a new life that seems terrifying. You know, uh, mixing memory and desire. Uh, 
and he talks about winter kept us warm. This is kind of a, you know, a contradiction, it seems like. But what he's talking about is, you know, we used to be at a point where we were covered in forgetful snow, where we were covered in ignorance. And all of that ignorance has been pulled away. We're no longer able to retreat to that time. We're no longer able to retreat to that innocence. And we've kind of been thrust into the world. Uh, you know, think about it, there's there's two versions of the way you can see a baby being born. You can see a baby being born as beautiful and joyous, but then again, from the perspective of the baby, this is pretty terrifying, because they come out of the womb where they're kept warm, and their, you know, nutrition is all given to them, and their, you know, everything they need is there, and, you know, they're they're comforted and then they're kind of thrust out into the harsh light of reality and that's what the beginning of this poem is about um, <clears throat> in the next stanza he says what are the roots that clutch what branches grow out of this stony rubbish son of man you cannot say or guess for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter the cricket no relief and the dry stone no sound of water so this heap of broken images is a really good uh, metaphor for the way that Eliot and the other writers in the modernist period are seeing where they're at, where they're living. You know, they have all of these wonderful, beautiful poems and songs and stories and paintings and religious traditions and, you know, cultural traditions, and they see it all as just shattered images, and, and they're trying to kind of piece these together. Um, he says you're going down another couple stanzas yet when we came back late from the hyacinth garden your arms full and your hair wet I could not speak and my eyes failed I was neither living nor dead and I knew nothing um, you know this is sort of that sense of uh, coming into this almost in shock and another thing that occurred in World War One in large numbers was you had a lot of people that were suffering for what they called back then as shell shock. Now we would refer to it as PTSD, same disorder. But this sort of just numbness, um, and a lot of people felt this coming out of World War One. the sense of what do we do? How do we just go back to living normal lives after we've lived through these horrible things? Um in the next stanza, they, they start talking about a uh, clairvoyant. Uh, Madame Sesostris, famous clairvoyant, had a bad cold, never, nevertheless is known to be the wisest woman in Europe, with a wicked pack of cards. Um, there was a, a, a movement in the beginning of the 20th century uh, to embrace a lot of different, uh, what we would call now, New Age religions, um, because people didn't feel like the old religion was doing it anymore. It didn't feel like the old religion was able to explain things. So there were, a, you know, hugely popular people who were psychics and seers and, you know, and this is something that was a very uh, popular and common tradition at the time period because you have people that feel like they're lost. And when people feel lost and they don't feel like the old ways are working, they're going to run until they find something. They're going to try on different things until they find something that they feel is working. Um, just a little further down, it's uh, he, he says, uh, here she said, this is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Look, 
those are pearls that were his eyes look is a direct quote from the tempest so this is i'm not going to point out all of the illusions because it would take hours to point out all of the illusions in this but that's one of the ones that is obvious and that is a direct quote uh, from a very famous piece of literature and from a piece of literature that we've actually talked about and this is part of the reason that i talked about the tempest was that it's it's one of shakespeare's works that seems to keep popping up with other writers other writers refer to it a lot other writers will go back to it so it has a a relevance that goes far beyond just the time period. Uh, going down to the next stanza, it says, Unreal city, under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs short and infrequent were inhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed up the hill and down King William Street. This is also an allusion to an older poem. But this is also kind of uh, metaphorically talking about uh, the people that are in London, um, both the soldiers returning and the people just living their daily lives, going to their daily lives of work. You know, if you've ever watched people going off to work or coming home from the work, coming home from their work, you know, you almost get this impression of zombies just kind of lifelessly marching to and from what they have to do. So this is sort of a feeling that, what is the meaning of this all? We're just going through the motions to go through the motions. In the next section of it, he, he titles the next section a game of chess. And this section is actually sort of two looks at uh, marriage. The first part of it is a look at an upper-class marriage, and the second part of it is is what would be considered a look at the middle or, you know, I should say the working class marriage. You know, in the first um, part of this uh, section, um, you get a huge description of a very ornate, beautiful room. The chair she sat in like a burnished throne glowed on the marble where the glass held up by standards wrought with fruited vines from which a golden cupidon peeped out. Another hid his eyes behind his wing, doubled the flames of seven-branched candelabra reflecting light upon the table as the glitter of her jewels rose to meet it. This is, is a pretty long section, and it just kind of describes this very lavish, very beautiful room, but at the same time he's describing it, this also feels like a very dead room. It's, it's almost like a museum of beautiful things that have lost their life. Um, uh, once you get into the second stanza, you start getting into the conversation between the husband and wife, the ones that are sitting at this table. And the wife starts out, My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think. And, you know, if anybody's ever been in a relationship, you've probably been at this point where... One of the people is just sort of sitting there quietly thinking and the other person is going insane because the person just sitting there quietly thinking isn't sharing anything. You know, and you have the wife kind of going off and the husband, it's like, what are you thinking about? You know, share your thoughts with me. Uh, because again, this is, this is not like the idealized marriage. Remember, this is not a world that 
the, the modernist writers see as being perfect and being wonderful, this is a world they see as being broken and empty, and they're trying to put it back together. So this conversation is kind of like the reality of marriage, even though they have all of this lavish wealth. You know, a lot of the people in the lower classes, the working classes, all have it in their head that if you get wealthy, you'll be happy. And we still have this idea. You know, there are so many people that think my life will be wonderful if I just get wealthy. If I just have a lot of money, then I'll be happy. And here Elliot is showing a couple that basically has, you know, lavish jewels, all the money they could ever want, and they're completely dead. There's no life to this couple. And the husband responds to the wife. He says, I think we are in Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones. Um, which, is, which is probably not what she was hoping that he was thinking about. You know, she's like, what are you thinking about? And he's like, oh, I'm thinking we're pretty much in the alley with rats and everything's, you know, everything's dead. Uh, and then she starts, you know, sort of almost ignores him and goes into something else. What is that noise? Uh, and he answers her. The wind under the door. What is that noise now? What is the wind doing? Nothing. Again, nothing, he responds to her. Do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? Um, he says, I remember those are pearls that were his eyes. Another allusion back to that, uh, to the tempest line that I told you before. Uh, are you alive or, or not? Is there nothing in your head? And he responds, but oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag, it's so elegant, so intelligent. You know, he's he's kind of off in his world, and she's trying to desperately get him to engage in, you know, conversation that has some life and to feel something. So she kind of gets more and more frustrated. What shall I do now? What shall I do? I shall rush out as I am and walk the street with my hair down. What shall we do tomorrow? What shall we ever do? And he responds, the hot water at ten, and if it rains, a closed car at four, and we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. So basically, she's like going stir-crazy. She's like, what are we going to do? I want to be alive. I want to live. I want to do something. And he's like, no, nah, we're just going to basically sit here and wait for death to come pick us up. Um, so that's the upper-class marriage. Um, the lower-class marriage starts in this last stanza. And the... the, the um, diction of this section is very different and the speed of it is very different uh, when Lil's husband got demobbed I said I didn't mince my words I said to her myself and then there's an interruption hurry up please it's time um, hurry up please it's time for Americans is what they say in British pubs for last call uh, so Americans it would be somebody the bartender in the back saying last call or the you know the waitress is saying last call this is the bartender in a pub basically calling for last call. So you know the scene is in a bar. And then it goes back into the person speaking. Uh, now Albert's come home. Make yourself a bit smart. He'll want to know what you didn't with all that money he gave you to get yourself some teeth. He did. I was there. You have them all out, Lil, and get a nice set, he said. I swear I can't bear to look at you. And no more can I, I said. And think of poor Albert. He's been in the Army four years. He wants a good time. Uh, you know, so this is a direct reference to him being away in the war and coming back. And, you know, the friend is trying to tell her, you know, you, you can't look like you're ancient. you got to look, you know, good for when your husband comes back. Because this is sort of the expectation is that, you know, women were supposed to always be happy, always be cheerful for their husbands. 
Um, but this is, again, he's not painting this as this is the way it should be. He's painting it as this is the way society says it is, and this isn't working. This isn't the way it is. Uh, and then he says, uh, and if you don't give it to him, there's others that will, I said. Oh, is there, she said. Something of that, I said. And then I'll know who to thank, she said, and give me a straight look. So in other words, she's saying, you know, if you don't make yourself pretty, your husband's going to come back and he's going to find somebody who he does think is pretty. And, you know, the her friend responds, well, I'll know who to thank then. In other words, saying, you know, her friend is going to be the one that takes it. So this is kind of, um, and, and then it goes into uh, a part where she goes to uh, a chemist to basically get an abortion is what happens. Um, and, and, you know, she says... Uh, I can't help it, she said, pulling a long face. It's them pills I took to bring it off. That's She took pills to get an abortion. Uh, she's had five already and nearly died of young George, so this would have been her sixth child. And again, this is something that is the expectation of the lower classes, is to have child after child after child. And she's like, no, I just can't do this anymore. You know, she's she's worn out. She's had five children. This would be six. Um... Uh, and then her friend says, uh, you are a proper fool. I said, well, if Albert won't leave you alone, uh, there it is. I said, uh, why did you, what did you get married for if you didn't want children? In other words, you know, this is kind of the old fashioned belief that that's all the woman should want is to get married and have children and then she should be fulfilled. But you can see by, you know, what the one, the other woman is saying, that this is far from the reality of the situation, that just getting married doesn't, and having children doesn't fulfill you. And, and, and this is kind of showing how this sense of emptiness, this sense of loss, this sense of everything being broken, isn't just something that is in the artistic class. It isn't just something that's in the upper class or the lower class. It's kind of all throughout society. Um, the next one is called the fire sermon, the next section, section three. Uh, the river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. The nymphs are departed. Sweet Thames run softly till I end my song. The river no, bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, sil silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer nights. The nymphs are departed. It's kind of like this sort of, uh, the party's over and we don't ever think the party's coming back, which is kind of ironic in the 20s because that's what most people were doing in the 20s. But it isn't so much the party... Uh, that left because people are still partying this is the jazz age people are drinking and dancing and having a good time mainly because they're trying to forget how bad the world is this is more that we can't just go back to that innocent fun it was all wonderful it was all innocent it was all beautiful back then and that stuff is all gone you know in the next uh, stanza a rat crept softly through the vegetation dragging its slimy belly on the bank you know, this is definitely a sign of decay and of, of, of reality setting in and showing that decay. Uh, let me go to... Okay. Um, you have a next section going down where you even have a different uh, view on love. Um, 
there's a young man that kind of arrives, and you get the sense that he's the per, the woman he's seeing is a prostitute. She's not his wife. She he comes in to have a good time and leaves. Um, so this is kind of even drawing uh, attention to the fact that even the you know amorous encounters that are outside of marriage are still empty. Uh, the meal is ended, she is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses which are still unreproved if undesired. Flushed and decided, he, he assaults all at once, exploring hands encounter no de defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome to, of indifference. Um, and, you know, when he leaves, uh, she, you know, looks herself in the mirror, hardly aware of her departed lover, and, you know, allows her brain one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. Um, so again, you know, this is like looking at none of the relationships seem to be fulfilling. They all seem to be empty. They all seem to be going through the emotions. Uh, let's jump to... Uh, Death by Water, which is the fifth section. It's, this is the short, one of the short sections, the shortest section. Uh, Phlebas the Phoenician, a fourth night dead, forgot the cry of gulls and the deep sea swell and the profit and loss. A current under the sea picked his bones and whispers as he fell. He passed the, eight, the stages of his age and youth entering the whirlpool. Gentile or Jew, O you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas who was once handsome and tall as you. And this is kind of a symbol of you know, sort of like a, a warning that no matter how beautiful, no matter how wonderful you are, it's all just going to crumble into decay. You're going to you're going to sort of rot. Again, this is this is not a cheerful, feel good, happy poem, because this is not the way people were feeling. Again, they were partying on the you know, they were partying, but again, a, a lot of this partying is to cover up the things they were really feeling. Um. And they go into a lot of images of water, which I'm not going to go into. Uh, I'm going to go towards the end, though, uh, where he says, I have heard the key turn in the door once and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison, thinking of the key. Each confirms a prison. Only at nightfall, ethereal rumors revive for a moment a broken Coriolanus. So... It's it's kind of like the key is also like a, a symbol of death. You remember the uh, wealthy couple that were waiting for the knock on the door for death to come get them. The key in the door is kind of this image of death is always back there. And eventually it's going to come, turn the key, open the door, and come and claim you. Um, the last stanza of this, um, he says, I sat upon the shore fishing with the arid plain behind me shall I at least set my lands in order um, this image at the end and the image that this was building up to is the image of the Fisher King now the Fisher King is um, a king who was wounded on his thigh and so he sent his knights off of in in search of the Holy Grail because the Holy Grail is the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper there was the belief that drinking from the Holy Grail could heal the wound. And the wound on the thigh meant the king was infertile. And since the king was infertile, um, you know, there was sort of the legend that if the king is infertile, the whole land is infertile. 
And that's what this ends with the image of, is the image of the Fisher King, sort of waiting for that Holy Grail, waiting to be healed um, so that everything can be healed, so that the, the world won't be infertile. The world will be able to heal itself and return. Okay. Uh, I know The Wasteland is a pretty heavy poem to get into. I hope all of you will try to dive into it a little bit for yourselves. Uh, it is definitely worth the read. Don't be frustrated or, you know, put off by it. Uh, one of the things about reading poetry is it's not really meant to be read once and you got it all. It's it's one of those types of writing where it's meant to be read multiple times and the more you read it, the more you'll get out of it. So, all right, I'm going to break off the first episode of season two, episode one, and I hope all of you are doing well and I hope all of you are staying safe. Um, next time we will be talking about Hegel. Have a good night.